Hello, you're listening to Pod Academy. This podcast is the second half of a lecture on the future of newspapers by Hugh Linehan, Digital Development Editor of the Irish Times. In the first podcast, Hugh looked at the various business models that are emerging to shape the future of news. In this podcast, he looks at the legal issues that digital news throws up and also answers questions on such things as freelance rates in the digital economy. If you'd like to listen to the first half of the lecture, just go to podacademy.org and search on Hugh Linehan. I suppose one thing that, that, that is very important to say is that everything's happening so fast that our systems of regulation and of, of law um, have fallen incredibly far behind incredibly quickly. And I think that was always bound to happen given the nature, given the nature of regulation and law. But that applies to some very serious issues for us as newspapers and as, and, and as media organisations. I'm driving the Irish Times more into what were traditionally seen as broadcasting spaces. Um, what does that mean for the position of um, two regulatory bodies? One is the uh, Broadcasting Authority of Ireland and one is the, uh, the Ombudsman, the Press Ombudsman and his council. I gave a pres- presentation to the, to the Ombudsman and his committee there uh, a couple of weeks ago. And there are huge questions for them. They are, they're, they're quite busy enough with looking at what's published in newspapers and the problems that, that arise from that on a weekly or day-to-day basis. I present a podcast every week called Inside Politics, and I push it out on Twitter and Facebook, and I interact with people who listen to it on Twitter and Facebook. And I am not... There are no rules. Are there, the only rules that apply, in theory, are the press ombudsman's rules, which clearly aren't uh, you know, particularly applicable to what works for a radio show. Now, I'm not saying I want to be bound by the current rules of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, because in some ways, from a newspaper's point of view, they're slightly absurd. One of the good things, I think, about being able to do a podcast within a newspaper is I don't have to have this spurious veneer of complete impartiality and not having an opinion of any sort. So when I interview Breedy O'Brien uh, about the whole Pantygate um, homophobia thing, I can just say on the record as her interviewer, Breedy I'll be voting for same-sex marriage. That's my position on that. Let me just make that clear. And now let me ask you that question. Now, that's not... You can't do that on prime time. Or even Vincent Brown can't do it, although he does in his own, in his own uh, unique kind of a way. So you can actually... One of the advantages that the newspapers, in theory, I think, can bring to the thing is not to be constrained by some of these slightly ridiculous, to my mind, rules about, rules about public service broadcast regulation. But what are the rules, then? What should the rules be? What should the rules be in, in, in video? What should we do or what should we not do? What we're trying to explore with both our audio and video streams at the moment is what can we do that's interesting, that's appropriate to us, that's interesting to our listeners or, or viewers, which is not already done by a broadcaster. Very often that will mean stretching the envelope of what's permitted by the legislation. Um, it, uh, I think as this develops, it'll become more challenging because, to be fair, we're the Irish Times, we're a bit stuffy. So we're not necessarily going to be pushing the envelope in ways that certain other, certain other media organisations will do. So that's one question. But a more fundamental question, one which I keep putting to RTE and they keep kind of looking, you know, oh yeah, that's an interesting question. Oh look, there's a plane. Uh, is, what, what does broadcast mean anymore? You know, Pat Rabbit has, has said that, um, that it's going to change the, uh, the licence fee. It's not going to be a broadcast fee anymore. It's going to be a public service content uh, charge. Fine, great, that makes complete sense. Uh, everybody knows that that makes complete sense. But then why should that be uh, attached to 
uh, only broadcasters. If you're removing the source of funding from the concept of broadcast, well then why then, if you're applying for funding, say through the Sound and Vision Fund, uh, which, uh, which supports various radio documentaries and, uh, and TV series of, of various sort, why is that restricted to people just because they happen to have a radio mast on top of a mountain somewhere? It's absolutely absurd. There is no logic there. And there's a battle coming on that, because certainly that's a battle which, which I'm looking forward to join. I'm not saying, to be clear, uh, as, as some people have said, including the, um, the chairman of the examiner group, that newspapers should somehow be funded by the licence fee. I'm not saying that. In fact, in some ways that would send a shiver down my spine. I don't, like, I don't like the idea of the level of regulation which is applied to broadcasters being applied to media. I like the idea of an independent, with a small eye, print media or media that exists outside, outside that kind of sphere. But if I wanted to, which we are already well capable of doing, doing a quality series of documentaries on a cultural issue or something like that, uh, and we wanted to push it out to a digital audience through irishtimes.com, why the hell shouldn't we be just in as much a position to look for funding on that as somebody from Clare FM or News Talk or, or whoever the hell whoever the hell it might be? Another thing, which is um, so that's one point is the is the regulation issue. And another point, which which goes back years to me, days in in, in film, is that, that that fundamental question about being a small English speaking country in a globalized media landscape. Um, dominated by these uh, behemoths living living next door to um, to a media saturated society, which finds it very easy to dump its products, whether they be te- television or print or whatever it might be, at a relatively low cost on the market. A very unusual position, and the reason and, and that position is the reason why the state made certain, in my view, enlightened decisions to support. Cultural activity, cultural activity and the telling of our own stories to ourselves within Ireland. And those kind of questions become even more pertinent now. But also, to be honest, really quite difficult to address in a media, which is digital media, which is entirely transnational uh, and very difficult to regulate. And you can see that at the moment in some of the debates, for example, around, uh, around copyright. These get very messy sometimes, and I got involved in a on the wrong side of a debate last year where the National Newspapers of Ireland, the Industry Association for for newspapers in this country, um, made the, to my mind, rather unwise claim that links to uh, newspapers were were copyrightable. Uh, I don't know where the hell they got that idea from, uh, but it was all all rather embarrassing. But arising out of that has been quite a, a fractious debate about where the new rules of copyright in the new era should stand. We know, of course, that um, copyright, with the music industry in particular, has been a, has been a, a, a course, you know, a cause of huge, huge contention. And from the point of view of people in the music industry, has led to the kind of the, the decimation of that industry. Whatever one's, one's view may be on that, I don't necessarily share that view myself. But the question of aggregators and how aggregators work, there's been a lot of lot of conflict between the journal.ie as a new media enter entrant into the Irish market and traditional newspapers about whether or not the journal was actually aggregating or choose in other words, stealing content from, from the original content creators. Hand on heart, I actually don't really think that's their business model, but I think there are other people out there whose, whose business model that is as well. And, and another point, which is something that um, I can't go into too much detail on, but is because it's a, it's a live legal issue um, for us, is, is the differentiation, I suppose, between being a publisher and being a platform, and how for us, as we change our... As, as we change what we do, how much we become a platform and what the legal implications of that might be. In other words, 
our traditional model is we decide that something's worth publishing, we commission it, we get one of our staff people to do it, or we get somebody else to do it, it passes through the loving tender care of an editor who may craft it slightly, it ends up in a newspaper or on a website or wherever it might be. Meanwhile, a whole debate kicks off about that or around that in some way, but that debate is kicking off on boards.ie or on Twitter or somewhere else, and that's where the actual action is happening on foot of, on foot, on foot of something which, which we created in the first place. Um, we have user comments on our site. Uh, up until two years ago, we pre-moderated all those comments. Uh, but, you know, that's incredibly resource-heavy. And also what it meant was, you know, you know, we had people there moderating, but they've got to go to the toilet sometimes or get that Americano or whatever it might be. And so it wasn't real time. And people are increasingly used to and they expect that they're having a conversation around it subject to some contention, that it's in real time. That's how you deal, you know, that's how you deal with stuff on Twitter and everywhere else. So for that reason, and also for quite strong legal reasons, we moved to a post-moderation situation. Ironically, even though post-moderation means that anything can go up there because we're not preventing it, it actually leaves us in, uh, uh, our advice is, that it leaves us in a better, a more advantageous legal situation because we are not publishing this content. We are acting in the same way as social network sites do, uh, in that we are just we're providing the platform to be published. And in the event that something which is legally problematic, defamatory, or something else uh, um, is, is posted by an individual on that site, once it's drawn to our attention and we act in a relatively prompt fashion on that, well, then we are not legally liable for it. So that's our defense on user-generated content at the moment. And it's, it's going to be tested pretty soon, and that's going to be, that's going to be very interesting. But I think that the core of our argument here is that if we can't do this, we're put at a disadvantage versus these global corporations who are actually profiting off our work in, 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 in many ways. And that is quite at the, at the, at the core of our argument. Um, there is... I, I, said, I, I said to Rod at the outset I was going to mention a couple of things which are worth, worth linking to, and I'll send links around in the end. Um, in terms of understanding what's going on, and in terms of what I've just said about regulation, a really terrific book that's worth reading isn't about this stuff at all, actually. It's called The Master Switch. It's by Tim Wu, who's a, a, an American academic. And The Master Switch is about technological disruption at the end of the 19th and start of the early 20th centuries, which was the last great moment of huge technological efflorescence with the, uh, the invention of the phonograph and the telephone and the cinema uh, and, and a range of other things. And what Tim Wu does in that book is he looks at the history of all those, the, the radio, television as well, uh, through to the 1930s. And he looks at the history of how each of those developed. Um, and he looks at you know, the, the point at which, the point of invention, the point of early adoption. He argues that in, at any, in any area of, of real technological disruption, there's a point of complete anarchy. Uh, where basically all hell breaks loose, existing copyright laws break down entirely, businesses go to the wall, new businesses flare up and then disappear again within, within a couple of years. And then at some point, a new equilibrium, or some might argue hegemony, um, reasserts itself. And it's usually with the assistance or driven by the state. And all his examples, by the way, happen in the, in the United States about Con Edison and the, the battles over the patent wars over cinema and all those kinds of things, um, which we always traditionally think, well, you know, the state doesn't have a huge role to play in the, in the role of, in the in, in in the growth of American industries. Well, you'd be very wrong to think that actually. Um, and he talks about ultimately how these new hegemonies were set up. So, for example, in broadcasting, ABC, NBC, CBS 
were essentially created with the assistance of regulatory federal authorities in the 1920s and went on to control broadcasting really until the arrival of cable television in the, in the, in the 1980s. And he argues that this is, this is a natural cycle that happens. And it's quite a convincing book because apart from anything else, I think we can see it happening right now. You can see the, the hegemony of, the waning hegemony of, of, of Microsoft, the ascendance of Google, Apple and Amazon. You can possibly see a couple of other ones on the horizon. We are, the new world is being shaped around us as, 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 as we speak. Um, I am I'm not a utopian. Um, I don't believe that a thousand flowers will bloom. Um, my, um, my experience is that, um, not to be too cynical about it, but you know, in general the, the, the people are more interested in lolcats than they are in uprisings. Um, and, um, and, and that's just the way it is. However, I'm not a dystopian either, and I don't agree with the idea that this is all part of some dreadful dumbing down and the uh, lowest common denominator across the board, and that um, everything that is worthwhile will be lost, and the barbarians are at the gates, and there are some well-known Irish Times columnists who make this argument every week, and I'm on the record as saying they're full of nonsense, which they are. What is happening, though, is a really really profound moment of change. So um, nothing should be taken for granted. I, I used to scoff slightly at this description of the Gutenberg moment, uh, this idea that what's happening is as profound as what happened at the moment of the invention of the printing press, which in turn led to the Reformation and the Renaissance and a lot of other bloody stuff as well. Um, but increasingly I'm persuaded that that, is, that, that, um, that it is as profound as that. And, and if I believe that, well, then I also have to say that I, uh, I really have no idea what's going to happen. To come back to my opening point about death, uh, I am an agnostic humanist. So just as in death I have no idea what happens after it, I have no idea what's coming next either. few things to talk about there, and you're, you, you have more of a, a, um, a range of possible models up your sleeve than you said in the title, so we've got, um, we've got a bit of time, um, who's here? Uh, thanks very much, Hugh, for explaining this Google, uh, interesting X, um, presentation. Um, could you maybe talk a bit more about the video and audio stream, because one of the things we've done here in the university is we're continue, continually telling young journalists that the future is, you know, conversion media, you need to be able to write and make video and audio and at some stage newspapers will be buying your stuff mm. as freelancers and so on. And is, is, I mean, where do you first of all see the, uh, the video, the videos that the Irish Times has, uh, where do you see that going in the next well, just to say how we got to where we are now, very, very, very briefly, we we tinkered, I probably is the right word, around with with, with video for for a couple of years, and uh, I mean I talked about the kind of financial freeze that we had on any new activities. So in the absence of any money at all, we just put flip cameras into the hands of a couple of journalists, and we shot a few bits and pieces around the time of the 2011 election. I was very unhappy with it because I felt that the production quality was 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 very low on all counts and. Uh, I just stopped us doing it for a while until I could get the company to release some resor- some actual resources. Um, the, the, one, of the, one of the challenges within what's traditionally a word-based print organisation is that 
people often tend to think that things are easier to do than they are. I, I, um, it, it's, it's more than 20 years since I worked in film or television production, but I know a lot more about film and television production than anybody else in the Irish Times. So that's the kind of knowledge deficit, if you like, that, that's, that's kind of in there. It did get um, um, some funds released, secured some funds released, starting in the kind of second half of last year. Uh, and we've we've done a, we've done a number of things. We now have five people working full time on video. Four of them are, are new hires, and one of them is a photographer who's shot a lot of video himself, Brian O'Brien, who's now part of the video department as well. We're using um, broadcast standard cameras plus DSLRs sometimes too. We uh, we have syndication agreements with Reuters, so there's a mix of, of of that type of content. Plus, at times like when you have the really bad weather stories which play really well from a video point of view, by the way. And we get some user-generated content or freelancers around the country that sent us stuff in from Limerick and, uh, and from the West, from Clare. We, uh, we, happily, take that. we happily take that too. Uh, and the other thing we're actually doing right now is we're working with a chap called Glenn Mulcahy, who teaches, uh, who, uh, who some of you guys may have come across, uh, RTE, Mojo Journalism, using smartphones uh, with, with add-ons in order, to, in order to shoot video packages. Glenn has done some training with some of our journalists, and he's going to do... He's got to do more with them on that. What, <clears throat> where I see us taking all that from from here is, um, I I still need to keep my editorial and commercial colleagues aware of the fact that we're at, we're on the kind of the baby slopes here still. You know, I get a lot of kind of you know when are we going to start doing half hour programs and things like that, and I go whoa, you know, um, I, I I think I'm getting there with educating them. You know, people. You know, we in the Irish Times band around, bandy around phrases like we are, the, we are the brand of quality and so on and so forth. And I say, well, that needs to apply in terms of the grammar and the syntax and the quality of the video and the content of that video as to everything else. You know, cheap and nasty just doesn't, doesn't work for us. It works, to be honest, for the independent. They'll throw it any old, any old or it seems to. They'll throw any old shite, as far as I can see, at their website in terms of video. Uh, and, you know off they go, fair play to them. That's good from our point of view because it allows us to, to differentiate a little bit. I wouldn't say everything we're doing now is perfect. We're trying to uh, uh, really, now, now, now we've had the team in place for about two or three months, the next stage I think is to try and uh, conceptualise and deliver recurring strands as opposed to just having stuff that pops up on the website with no necessarily all clear example as to why it is. We have a problem with the way it's presented and is searchable and shareable or more to the point not properly searchable and shareable within the website at the moment and we have an under underlying uh, infrastructure build happening on that right now in terms of third parties and freelancers one of the things i did quite a lot of um at the middle of last year was there were a couple of people knocking around uh, bright people who were kind of thinking well you know newspapers are clearly going to be looking for more of this product and they were looking to set up as providers uh, third part third party providers but there was a couple of problems with that. Um, nothing against the people themselves, but one was with video, you really need to be kind of locked into the, the organization itself to know what's going to work. Um, by which I mean, you know, in an ideal world, we want to, um, uh, we've got a piece, don't tell anybody, but we have a, we're doing a kind of a ask me anything thing with Enda Kenny today. And some of the questions are quite funny and they come from well-known people and stuff like that. And we're going to shoot that as video. That, that, that'll work very well. But the reason we have it is because we're the Irish Times. Um, and uh, and that would uh, and what works really well for us is you know what do we have? I talked about the Guardian using its DNA. Well, in a way, what what do we have that we can build on and build into this new medium? And it's good journalists who can who can talk 
Um, this is true of both audio and video, and can stand in front of a camera and share. RT would be lost if it wasn't for uh, if it wasn't for print journalists. They wouldn't have any current affairs programs at all. So it's about time we started using that stuff ourselves and putting our people in front in front of the camera. But we also have because of who we are, we we have stories. Uh, and we have access to people and that's how we need to kind of translate into the video stuff so in terms of if you're asking me about third party pitches the problem with these third party providers who set up was their cost base was too high uh, in that the price per clip was kind of would kind of put you off um, so that so that was one problem and also they were I suppose they were trying to second guess us so they were doing a lot of news markings and to be honest whatever about an ask me anything with Enda Kenny when you ask him to do something funny, um, you know, yet another doorstep with a government minister on a minor controversy at nine o'clock outside government buildings. Mm-hmm. There's only so many of those things, really, that, you know, that, that or yet another, God forbid, press conference in Buswell's hotel, you know, with three grim-looking men sitting behind a green base tablecloth, you know. So uh, I'm not, I would say any journalist should, should, uh, should make sure that they get the equivalent of uh, of Glenn's course, Glenn's one-week course. They may need to go, I, I'm not sure how many of them there are here, you may need to, BBC run some good courses and things like that, or you guys need to set it up yourself. But they need to know how to shoot a good two or three minute package. Uh, but beyond that, setting themselves up as a video freelancer is might be a bit trickier at the moment. Where it's going to go, I think our content will get more long form, um, because I think there's a logic to that. I'm keen to build a studio. I know the Indo have built a studio on their in their uh, offices, um, and I think we will kind of you know be doing more. I suppose complex, more slightly more long form stuff. But again, like I was saying about the podcast uh, earlier on, there's no point in us just trying to pretend to be you know TV three B or something like that. You know, um, so we need to figure out need to figure out what that is. You know, and how that would work. Find yeah, find 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 a voice and 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 use the power of the use the freedom of the format. You know, look at the ways in which broadcasters are trapped by their own legacy issues. So they've got to wait for the six o'clock bulletin in order to do a thing. You know, live television makes certain demands on them in that way. So beat them to the punch, for example, perhaps in 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 certain circumstances. And then yes, absolutely find a voice. Yeah, and probably one of the things you do is give things more of a voice than broadcasters are allowed to do sometimes. One of the things. Thank you. Ayo Kadana from Upper Hospital. Baby here in, in the university, and I'm going to have to go soon because my eight-year-old son is making his first concession, <laughs> which has not gone online. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure how many people are availing of their services, but the services aren't available online as of yet. He was advised to have at least three SINs going in. <laughs> has he gotten? <laughs> That's the next question. But it seems to me that we're, we're all in search of a new paradigm because RT and Sky are in major battle for television revenue and Sky are beating them, which affects how many Irish stories are told every year, etc, etc. I work here in education, and education is moving online quite quickly. Sure. The Irish Times last week ran two very interesting um, features on Saturday and again on Tuesday. Um, and I noticed that the ITs are moving in that direction quicker than the universities, so that can tell its own story. Um, so we're all looking for a business model. We're all trying to find ways to turn a euro out of the digital world. And, and uh, supplementary to Inch's question, I'd be interested to find out how much you're paying the guys from Limerick and County Clare that send down a digital photograph or uh, a podcast or a piece of video or a clip 
Well, I, 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 could, go, I, I could go for the old RTE defence and say it's commercially sensitive, but I, I tell you, we, I don't think we're paying them badly. Like, if somebody shoots a bit of video, I mean, this is, you know, they're kind of freelance rates, so, you know, don't, hold, don't, don't be ringing up the Irish Times news desk and saying, this is what I want for this now, but essentially we pay somewhere between 120, 130 quid for, you know, a couple of minutes of video. That's what we paid for. And, and, and also, we, we weren't looking for exclusivity on that as well, so somebody was free to shop that to or the Indo as well and that's kind of that's in the same ballpark as we would pay for if somebody filed four or five hundred words so we're kind of approaching it in the same way uh, I, I would I would hand on heart say oh god there's the office um, I would hand on heart say that we do try not to rip people off and I'm not being holier than thou or anything like that but I'm a father I'm a former far, uh, father of the chapel uh, in the NUJ the Irish Times generally treats its employees well, and certainly these days, regrettably, treats them better than they're treated in a lot of other places. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of freelancers, there's always a tension between freelancers and uh, and commissioning editors, and they, you know, people always feel they're not getting their their fair due on that. But I think that's not an unreasonable uh, that's not an unreasonable you know payment. And I certainly I can tell you that's more than any revenue that attaches to the playing of that video. Yeah. Could I ask? Quick question because I have to go. Sure. Um, I just I am um, like don't buy the Irish Times every day, and when I do buy it, I almost feel like I'm being a patron of the artist. You know that I think I could get this, but I feel a sense of duty to get this content online. But the one day I always buy it is Saturday because it, there's a sense of a kind of collective and a ritual experience around it, and it. I was just trying to think about what am I looking for in that experience. And mm. it's not just context, it's also a kind of curation, I think, you yeah. know, which goes back to the idea of the pleasure is in not knowing what's going to be in it, because most of the time my encounter with news and content is self-directed. And so when I'm t- on Twitter, I can click on Irish Times as easy as click on the salon. And in the sense, that they have the same status for me. So one day a week I want to have a different experience. And I'm wondering, is it possible to... We create that kind of curation in an environment which is inherently open. You know that at any moment I can click away from the Irish Times website. Um, you know. I I think it's very difficult. I think that there's a, there's there's an aspiration there among the more uh, mature members of editorial staff because that's what they like. You know there is a lot of talk about this. Is that what what we can bring to the party in this you know data data overload environment is is some curation and saying uh, you know. Here, here you are. This is our package. We we are very well read, and we think this will be useful for you. I'm uncomfortable with that. Like as I said earlier, you know, I mean, I've got some really bright people on my Twitter feed. You know, and they're brighter. Don't tell anybody. They're brighter than the people I work with in the Irish Times. Or say some of them are. You know, and they will they will point me. They will point me in in, in directions really fast. Now, that's not to say that the, the print experience and things that are analogous to the print experience in the digital space don't necessarily have a value. One thing is, I mean, you look at what the New York Times are doing with metered modelling. What they're saying is, get the Sunday New York Times, which is their equivalent of Saturday Irish Times, and, and a digital pass for the week. And they give you a very attractive offer on that because they really want to hold on to those people who just buy, who just, just buy it at the weekend. But equally, I mentioned digital subscriptions. One of my digital subscriptions is the New Yorker. And the New Yorker is certainly not an all-singing, all-dancing, multimedia, twirling app. It has a couple of 
bits stuck on at the end, but I usually don't look at those. I look at them because I feel like I'm reading the New Yorker. It's the same font on the on the tablet. It's very similar to the, the traditional print experience. I can look at the cartoons and all the other bits of plot that I love about the New Yorker. So there's, uh, I mean, we have a product uh, which is really not not great. Um, I would admit, but it could be better, which is called the digital edition, which is basically just a PDF reader for um, for a tablet. Now, I think there's probably an intermediary between that and having a, like a fully fledged iPad app. Um, that you could actually deliver quite, you know, that, that there would be a certain audience for. Um, and I'm not afraid at all, at all of saying there's a more mature audience who might welcome that more. But actually, I welcome it as well because, I mean, I talked about, I don't know if you know Pocket, it used to be called Read Me Later. No, and all you do is, uh, it's a free app, and all you do is you just hold on that link in Twitter or wherever you're looking for it, and it opens up, you know, the usual open in Safari or email or whatever, and it says, Read Me Later, hit Read Me Later, it strips it out. And it just um, it it just gives you a really simple reading experience, and that whole business of the hyperlinks and the display ads and and all that kind of rubbish, you know. Um, I probably won't be able to show it to you here anyway. But um, so, a classic example would be um, I don't know if anybody's read Andrew Hagen's amazing essay in the LRB last week about Andrew Hagen, the Scottish the Scottish uh, novelist, was hired to be the ghostwriter for Julian Assange's autobiography. And it turned out to be the worst disaster uh, ever. And it, he has written a twenty-five thousand word essay in the London Review of Books. It's a fantastic read. I would, I would highly, I would highly recommend it. But if you read it in uh, in pocket, it's just so wonderful. If you see, like, it's like it's like reading on a Kindle or something like that. Of course, I don't have. Oh, it does, yeah. So you see this type of thing. Look, no ads, no hyperlinks, no nothing. I think there's a market for no hyperlink. You know, for for that kind of stripped down kind of experience. You know? and then the, I suppose the final thing is about the Saturday paper is people do bemoan that loss of serendipity that thing of I, I opened page 5 because I wanted to see this but I also saw that which I would never have thought about you know, looking at and, and that is a loss that is a loss in the internet because no matter how, how, how I suppose broad minded one thinks one is being one still lives in one's own creative bubble of these are the things I'm interested in and frequently you know? unknowingly online as well unless you know Google increasingly tailors my search for yes. me and Amazon, yes. etc. So and Twitter annoyingly as well, you know, um, does that too. Yeah. yeah. Plus, but on Twitter, um, I, I, there's no shortage of ignorant Irish Times columnists on this subject. And one of them uh, last year wrote, wrote a column about how Twitter wasn't worthwhile because his sons had put him on Twitter because he's a fan of Liverpool Football Club. And he, so he got on Twitter, and it was full of inane witterings from uh, people who played for Liverpool Football Club. Well, you know, <laughs> as an Evertonian, I could have told him that that was going to be the case anyway. But, um, anyway, that's the kind of, you know, I, I've given up defending Twitter. I just say, I, I'm an American who does read the Irish Times at home online. I just wonder if there was a way to try to perhaps market it more to American to Z paper to read because there are some of us who really do are interested in what Andy Kennedy's up to or, or, or Kenny. But when I'm, since I've been here for a month or so reading it, you know, the hard copy, like the Garda crisis and the gay marriage debate, it's like too much in a sense. And mm. It's like you need, I think, sort of an intermediary for us Americans who want to follow what's happening in Ireland but not. And the depth, or with the presumption that we, we know who all the players 
Well, one of the things we're looking at, and, and it's nothing uh, groundbreaking, in fact, it's quite old-fashioned technology, but um, the Financial Times do it, and the Financial Times are a very interesting model because they're people who are actually making money in their transition to digital. Um, but um, is, is the concept of the, of the email digest newsletter. So, you know, you're, you, you get a business, that, you know, if you're, if you're a subscriber to the FT, you get a, a very high-end, high-quality digest of things you need to know every morning. It lands in your email box, 6 o'clock in the morning or whatever it might be. And it allows you to tailor and to kind of distill or curate, which was the word was worked down a little bit, so that there's a priority of here are 10 stories yeah. and things like that. Something you might look at is you can sign up. We do do a straightforward news one at the moment. And it might meet some of those needs because what you'll get is it'll land in your email box and it'll give you what we think are the 10 top stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you can choose to dig in further, but it means you don't have to go wandering around the site, you know, confronted with 15 articles about GSOC and acronyms and, you know, what does this stand for and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> you know. Last couple of questions, I think. Um, I'm German myself, but I'm Ireland. I studied journalism in Germany many years ago, 20 years ago, so... And I wrote Digital Times. What's interesting that uh, you look at correspondence and how the correspondence have left, well, they couldn't afford the correspondence anymore. So the agencies and buying an agency book um, was really important. But I think that kind of goes in again now. When I look at uh, applications, I have several applications from different countries. But I'm missing an island is really. Uh, an international viewpoint. Um, mm. The national viewpoint is very strong, and you get a lot of uh, sports, mm. <laughs> and uh, then you get a very strong kind of when there is something happening, like at the moment with the Gala, you know, Commissioner, there's a lot of that. But um, I mean, looking at Ireland is not just a national state, but it's embedded in Europe. And I was getting so annoyed at some stage last year before the German elections of the viewpoint that came across from uh, about Germany that I actually wrote a letter to the editor. Um, on to the Irish Times, <laughs> saying, uh, you know, um, German Consumer Index and how well Germany is doing, and what Mrs. Merkel is saying is all I've read in your paper in the last six months. Do you have any correspondent in there who can go, you know? Yeah, actually, yeah. there was a very Well, there is. You see, I would... I would yeah, I would, I would, I would defend, defend us here. Now, we don't... All newspapers have fewer foreign correspondents yeah. than they used to, and there is, a, there is a philosophical question about the kind of the traditional, slightly colonial notion of the man in the pith helmet who reports on what the natives are doing, and uh, whatever, in Evelyn Waugh style or whatever. But, but um, I, although we don't have the scale of foreign correspondence, probably that a Süddeutsche Zeitung or the Zeitung. Yes, but but hold but hold on. We have staff correspondence, uh, and I would compare us to all our competitors here, including RTE. We have correspondence in London, Brussels, Berlin, Paris. Washington DC and Beijing. We have journalists who write uh, ex- uh, exclusively to us uh, f- from Rome, uh, Sao Paulo, um, uh, Tokyo, um, and there's probably a couple of other ones that I can't remember. We have, we have, we have other correspondents. We, have, we currently have Dan McLaughlin in the Crimea reporting on what's happening in Simferopol, and he's reporting, sending us back audio as well as text. Now, that is not the scale of what the New York Times has or what the big British newspapers have, but RTE, for example, um, shut their London bureau, uh, have one European correspondent, um, and one American correspondent. And they're a national public service funded, funded broadcaster. Yeah. So we do three or four times as much as them. I, 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 most <laughs> we do. And Derek, 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 for example, and I, I, was, I was over with Derek in Berlin a, a few weeks ago. And, uh, you know, Derek is absolutely committed yeah. to letting people understand what's really happening in Germany. Because the danger from an Irish perspective is that 
where we go to, if you read in, in the Irish Independent, if you read a story about Germany, that will be syndicated copy probably from the Daily Telegraph yeah. or the Times. So it's refracted through a British Eurosceptic view and it's not an Irish perspective uh, on what's happening. And, and the, the reality is you're absolutely right that what's happening in Europe is more important that's to us than what's happening. That's I completely agree. And I think that's yeah. becoming more important again now. And also like open yourself up to the readers and um, like that point 2.0 or 3.0 is really asking for a platform that is asking students or um, people who are talented to um, also put forward something where the um, editors or where the experienced journalists can then be editors in the background. It works very well on some platforms. Yes, it does. Switzerland at 21 minutes. Yes. It's a very good one. Tagesschau in, in, uh, in Germany. They have I don't know how to Well, that's the main news channel, but there's a lot of um, journalists now uh, who, who take over, like, who are editing uh, the comments as well. Because mm. um, there needs to be uh, some editing function in there, otherwise, you get a lot I know you have a uh, function in there as well in, in your application. No, we need to do. We we are we are behind where I would like to see us on on that on on what people describe as the change from the traditional journalistic model, which is I'm going to get up in a sermon and tell you what's important, to a model which is a more two way two way or or multiple conversation. And we need to get on the train with that. And I wish we were further down that road than we do. We're just going to appoint a new opinion editor. We need to. I would like what the I like what the Guardian does. with comment is free. Uh, like there are there are a number of there are a number of different ways we can go. And it's actually it's a very Irish thing. As you know, the Irish like to talk and argue. So it's you know something we should we should be on. Maybe we've got time for another last Sorry. question. Thought. I'm just interested um, in. You may or may not have an opinion or, or, or information. Where are the provincial newspapers at in relation to all this kind of stuff? What's going to happen?